Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So today I'm with Julia Fawcett, the author of the new book, Spectacular Disappearances, Celebrity and Privacy, 1696 to 1801. Julia is in the Departments of Theatre, Dance and Performance at Berkeley uh, in California. Thank you so much for being with me today, Julia. So today I'm with Julia Fawcett, the author of the new book, Spectacular Disappearances, Celebrity and Privacy, 1696 to 1801. Julia is in the Departments of Theatre, Dance and Performance at Berkeley uh, in California. Thank you so much for being with me today, Julia. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you. Well, before we begin, let me just congratulate you on your book. It's been a fascinating read And something that struck me that you've managed to make it sound so incredibly relevant to the present, uh, which is a real kind of feat, considering that you are writing about these performances in London in the 18th century. So I've really enjoyed reading your book. Oh, thank you. Um, What I'd like to begin by asking, and you note this yourself, that, you know, performance studies really draws our attention to how performance is an ephemeral thing. It's so difficult to capture. It's so difficult to write about. And you're not only doing that, but you're writing about these performances and everything that go along with them from three centuries before our times, Mm -hmm. uh, which adds another kind of level of, of complexity. And I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about that process. Yeah. I mean, and this is a, this is a, controversy in um, performance studies and theater history in general. And and one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was um, to sort of speak to that and to think about the ways that we can combine theater history and performance studies, even though, according to some performance scholars, you know, performance studies is only interested in what is ephemeral and what we've seen live. And theater history is only interested in what can be documented. And so I wanted to think about well, how can we have these disciplines speak to each other? Because I think that's really important. Um, and so I guess my my strategy was to try to gather as much information I could as I could from the, um, the printed um, materials and all of the sort of printed ephemera that surrounded these ephemeral performances mm-hmm. to try to get a sense of all of this. And then to not limit it just to language, but to also think about costume and think about um, performing objects and think about sets. And um, so to sort of combine my interest in literary studies and in performance studies and in theater history. And um, what's nice about doing this in the 18th century is there were some wonderful theater historians in the 1960s who did all sorts of documentation of a lot of the uh, more ephemeral aspects. So thinking about uh, set design, but also thinking about, you know, what were, what did tickets cost and how can we, um, look at all of the playbills and figure out what actors were appearing where, when, um, and they, among other things, wrote this book called The London Stage, which 
was extremely helpful to me. Um, and so, so that was sort of my strategy was to try to think about like, how can we, how can we, by thinking about the ways that printed material is speaking to the stage and the way that the stage is speaking back, how can we get kind of a sense of these different personae that we're walking around? Um, I don't know that I've fully done that. I mean, I don't know that it's possible, right? I, I, I still find like that there's this real problem with the fact that, yeah, theater is ephemeral. And I, and I couldn't, there were a lot of things that I couldn't access that I really wanted to. But to me, history is too important to just leave it at that. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's too important to just say, well, it's ephemeral, so we can't ever get back to it. Um, and so it was important to to try, I guess, mm-hmm. to do what we can to answer the questions that we can, even even if those questions bring up other questions that we can't answer. Right, right. Well, I think that's something that comes across very strongly in your book. You know, you speak about the challenges of a methodology that does this, but in the end, it makes for a much richer account because you are considering, you know, performance as well as literature, as well as biography and autobiography, all of these things that capture, you know, a much more uh, holistic sense of, of what it meant to attend a performance even. Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing that's happened with 18th century studies in particular is that um, that theater historians and the people who study the novel and the people who study poetry have all sort of separated each other from each other. And so, I mean, particularly because the studies of the novel have been so influential in this period, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and the novel as sort of looked at as this new genre that that was thinking about a new way of um, describing and knowing the self. Um, it means that we've forgotten about how other genres are speaking to some of these same questions and maybe coming up with different answers, but also always aware of the answers that other genres are coming up with. So, you know, one thing that I, that I think about is the fact that people in the 18th century wouldn't, you know, decide that they believed that the self was, um, constant. And so they were only going to read novels and not um, look at the theater. They would read novels in the morning and go to the theater in the evening and come home and read poetry before bed. And so (laughs) the way that we have traditionally studied this period and separating those genres, I think, is not actually speaking to the true experience of what it was like to live in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that really leads me to um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about is you talk about uh, the celebrities in 18th century England and how they're negotiating their fame with their desires or their attempts for protecting their self-representation as well. But you tie this uh, to the emergent ideologies of self-expression and to the paradox of, of modern subjectivity as well. And I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so what, what kind of drew me to this project, what interested me is just the fact that, you know, there's all this sort of celebration coming out of a lot of a lot of it coming out of studies of the novel, this celebration of, um, you know, the idea of a constant self and how it can be how it can be um, described in the novel that charts a self's development from childhood to usually just after marriage. Um, and, uh, and that was sort of celebrated as this modern idea of the self. But I also wanted to think about how that could be a challenge for the people who actually had those selves, you know, because as soon as, as soon as the self is written down in that way, um, yes, you can say that you know the self, but you also 
as soon as you say that you know the self, then suddenly that's that leaves that self open to critique. And um, and so this is what the celebrities, I think, were dealing with. And I, you know, I chose celebrities, um, I mean, partly because I think celebrity is a really interesting issue in our own time. And I wanted to think about kind of the history of that, but also because they seemed like a really good case study for thinking about some of these questions about what are the drawbacks to to knowing a self or to expressing a self that can be known? Um, how does that leave us open to um, critique and open to um, this sort of these barbs of the critics and barbs of the fans and um, and the public? Mm-hmm. It's funny as I was reading um, through the chapters earlier, I, I, I really thought, wow, it's it's remarkable how you seem to bring these celebrities that you're discussing to life, and 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 you make it feel as if if we know them. And I thought, but that's the whole point is these people, you also make us question how knowable are these people? And Mm -hmm. and to realize that reading your writing is doing something quite similar to the techniques of overexpression that you describe. And and this concept of overexpression as suggesting a legibility for the self, but also denying that. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you discuss your your ideas of overexpression? Yeah. I mean, that's interesting what you've just said, because I think Another challenge of this project was essentially I was using literary and performance analysis to make the argument that these celebrities could never be fully analyzed. <laughs> and so um, there's a bit of a there's a bit of a conundrum there, but um, a bit of a paradox. But yeah, so my idea of overexpression is just that these celebrities were sort of forced because of the ideology of selfhood that was coming about at this point um, in order to be uh, to be famous, in order to be recognized as celebrities, they had to um, construct this idea of a knowable self. Mm-hmm. Um, and But at the same time, like I, like I said, um, that idea of a knowable self also opened them up to a lot of criticism. And um, so in order to avoid this, what they did was um, they they couldn't uh, they couldn't stand back from expressing themselves, right? They couldn't um, make themselves less knowable because that would, uh, or at least they couldn't uh, they couldn't hide from their celebrity because it was their way of making money, and people were demanding that they make themselves knowable. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they did instead was instead of instead of writing too little about themselves or performing too too infrequently. Um, they instead um, performed and and wrote about themselves to excess, so that um, all of the kind of ideologies of selfhood um, that that were being used to build up these stable selves were destabilized. So that Kali Sibber is my is was the first one I uh, that was the first chapter I wrote, and I and he's still my go to example. But essentially, he took this prop of the wig, which was a symbol of manhood um, and masculinity at the time, and was was in particular a symbol of stable masculinity at the time, right? It was a symbol of this like objectivity and um, and uh, sort of having a public life that is um, that is connected to but um, but not completely overshadowed by one's private life. Um, you know, the wig as like what English barristers still wear today. Mm-hmm. And he took that wig and instead of, instead of, you know, 
making it smaller or less spectacular. He instead made it humongous as Lord Foppington. Um, he made it um, too spectacular. And by doing that, it became the symbol of femininity so that when people looked at him in this wig, they couldn't say that he was hiding. They couldn't say that he was um, not exposing himself um, to his public, but they also couldn't say exactly what kind of self it was that he was expressing, whether it was masculine or feminine. It destabilized all of those rules for how we read the self in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. And and gender is a theme that you bring up quite a bit in your book. You know, whether it's transgressing gender or or engaging in um, in, in kinds of performances that may be considered cross-dressing um, with Sibber's daughter as well. Uh, could you speak about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so Sibber's daughter is a great, uh, she's a great sort of follow-up to Sibber because what she does then is in this very famous episode from her autobiography, because she also writes an autobiography that is in many ways a response to her father's. And one of the first scenes in her autobiography is her taking her father's wig down from the peg where it's hanging and walking out on the town wearing this wig and the wig is dwarfing her body. And, um, and, and then it becomes, if on her father, it became this symbol of masculinity that was destabilized into a symbol of femininity. When she, a woman, or at that time, a girl puts it on, it sort of becomes impossible to read as either masculinity or femininity. And so a lot of scholars in the past have sort of read this this as an episode of cross-dressing and have argued about whether this means she was an early example of a transgender identity, whether she was um, expressing a lesbian identity, whether she was trying to, um, you know, mimic her father and, uh, and get his attention. And, and what interests me is just the fact that I think she was trying to avoid nailing down an identity at all. I think it's actually significant that we're still arguing about what what kind of identity she was trying to express. Um, I think that actually she wasn't. She was trying to express no identity. She was trying to frustrate our ability to read that identity onto her body. Mm-hmm. And so, when you discuss kind of the the making as well as the unmaking of the subject, and how these celebrities were engaged in both, and perhaps benefiting from both, is is that what you're you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's. In the 18th century, as people like Dora Worm and, and others have written, there is there are these sort of increasingly rigid um, categories of identity, and especially regarding gender, but other categories of identity as well, and increasingly rigid sort of rules about how a subject makes himself or herself known, makes him or herself readable. And so I think that um, what these celebrities are doing is taking those rules and deliberately breaking them, but in this way where no one can say you, you aren't following the rules because they are expressing some kind of identity or they're sort of exaggerating some kind of identity, but rather we just, we, we have this sense that, um, that they're using these, these rules, but exaggerating them so that we can't anymore tell what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so your focus on the 18th century, could you provide some more historical context for our audience? Uh, it's, 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 you know, it sounds like you're suggesting that there was a major shift that happened in the performance world, uh, in, in the ways that, uh, who counted as a celebrity changed, 
Mm -hmm. um, what, what, how would you describe that shift? How could you explain that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I draw a lot on, um, on the work of people like Joseph Roach and Felicity Nussbaum, um, who have written about this, but, um, but, and, and, uh, his, Stella Tilliard has a great article where she sort of says, okay, there's, um, there are three things that happen in the 18th century that make um, celebrity a new kind of category that it hadn't been before. So people had been famous before, people had w been well-known before, but there are kind of three things that happen in the 18th century that influence the rise of the celebrity. Um, and she says one is the um, decline in the divine right of kings and the sort of in the aftermath of the civil, the English Civil War, this um, sort of questioning of... Um, of the uh, king as um, as someone who's binding cultures together, um, and so that celebrities take over this identity of the king as this um, spectacular persona that is that is binding imagined communities together. To use Benedict Anderson's term, mm -hmm. so that's one thing is the, is the sort of democratization of kingship or of, of rulers. Um, the second thing that she mentions is the um, lapsing of the Licensing Act in 1695, so that um, suddenly people, whereas before everything was very tightly censored and you couldn't really get away with talking about famous people in the periodical press without risking getting into a lot of trouble, mm -hmm. uh, with the la lapsing of the Licensing Act, um, that censorship was uh, taken away briefly, and so suddenly people got very interested in gossip and spreading gossip through the periodical press. And this has to do too with um, how periodicals and, and print became a lot cheaper at this point, more people could read. So there was a lot of sort of circulation of gossip around these celebrities. Um, and then that has to do too with the third thing that she mentions, which is this growing interest in private life during the 18th century. Um, and this has to do with... Um, partly the with the rise of the novel and the fact that people suddenly for the first time wanted to I I'm like hearing myself say for the first time and then thinking about all the historians who would be like <laughs> really the first time um but um, but uh, there was a change anyway in sort of the way that people were interested in private life as separate from public life so you had all of these uh novels about um instead of being about people going on quests, um, it was about people getting married or living their daily life. Um, and so uh, that, and that sort of spurred this interest also in the autobiography and memoir. And um, again, this kind of, this interest in people just sort of talking about the daily activities of their, of their private lives rather than something huge that they had done. Mm -hmm. And so celebrities who are famous as, Daniel Borston says, famous for being famous. Essentially, they're famous for what's the, the banal activities that they're engaging in their private lives. Um, you know, this, this sort of fueled uh, people's interest in celebrity. Um, so those are kind of three things that happened. Um, and, uh, and then there was also this, you know, sort of democratization of celebrity where instead of all celebrities being kings and priests, um, it started to be actors and actresses. So, it started to be based on not, again, not what people had done mm -hmm. um, in their public lives, but rather who they were in their private lives. Mm -hmm. 
On this point of autobiographies and memoirs uh, becoming more and more popular, I was struck by how you were discussing that the autobiography can sense, uh, suggest a kind of commodification of, of one's personal self, one's personal life. Um, and then you, you seem to suggest that autobiographical performances um, might be different from autobiographical texts. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of in that in that statement, I'm sort of drawing a little bit on um, less on work that's been done in 18th century studies and more on work that's been done in performance studies. And specifically, um, Peggy Phelan's work on performance, where she talks about she sort of defines performance as something that is not only ephemeral, it can't it, not only something that can't be reproduced, um, exactly, but also is something that can't be commodified. Mm -hmm. um, and a bunch of people have said, well, hang on a second, it can certainly be commodified. <laughs> Why are we paying so much money to go see Hamilton if performance can't be commodified? Right. And, and, I, and that is true. But there is something more complicated about commodifying performance that I think people were very anxious about in the 18th century, because when you commodify print, right, you, I'm going to pay you $15 for a book. And at the end of our transaction, if you say, what have you just bought? I have a tangible thing that I'm holding. And, um, you know, I say, well, I give you $15 and now I have this book. Mm -hmm. Um, but with performance, it's a bit more complicated because, you know, if I, uh, pay money to go to a performance of Hamilton, um, you know, at the end, if you say, well, what did you, what did you purchase? The answer is, I mean, depending on how much I liked the play, it's either I purchased an experience or, you know, I purchased two hours of my life that I'll never get back. You know, I mean, it's, it's sort of purchasing the, the expenditure of time. Um, and so I'm interested in the way that, um, performance allowed celebrities to um, question the ways that the autobiography sold themselves um, and allowed them to sort of play with that a little bit and make themselves a bit more ephemeral, a bit more unreadable. Mm -hmm. And how would that relate? I know that, you know, people have written about uh, the phenomenon of the star and in star industries, how it becomes so that uh, the the actual actor, the star and, and the characters that they play become almost indistinguishable. Did mm -hmm. you see that playing out in, in kind of the traces of, of the performances that you've been studying? Mm -hmm. Well, that's why I think it's so important to think about when we read these autobiographies or we read even... Um, the, the, you know, novels that refer to some of these celebrities or, for instance, the novels of Lawrence Stern, um, it's so important to think also about the performances that these audience members were familiar with um, and the characters that these people played in, in the plays that they wrote and in the plays that they appeared in because, of course, the um, readers of their autobiographies were very, were very familiar with that. And I think there's a way that they're, they're, the characters they played on stage and the characters they played in everyday life were speaking to each other. So Sibber, for instance, um, you know, talks a lot about in his apology, um, in his autobiography, talks a lot about his wig that he wore as Lord Foppington. And it becomes kind of a trademark of his. But like I said, you know, it's kind of an odd trademark because we can't 
quite figure out exactly how it marks him, um, exact, exactly who it makes him. And similarly, or sort of conversely, um, Lawrence Stern in his novel is, I think, I mean, he, he sort of cultivated this um, tendency that people had to make up or to mix up Lawrence Stern and Tristram Shandy and the P- Parson Yorick. So he published his, his own sermons under the name of the Parson Yorick. Um, the first few volumes of uh, Tristram Shandy were published without Lawrence Stern's name on them. And, and people at first um, seriously, and then after that sort of facetiously or playfully kind of uh, described the author as not as Lawrence Stern, but as Tristram Shandy. And so, and then he would sort of go out onto the town in London and introduce himself to people as Yorick or as Tristram. And so he, you know, this, this mix up of the characters in the books um, or in the plays, the, the characters that the actors were playing and the characters that the writers were writing about, and then the, the characters that they seem to inhabit in everyday life, I think, was all part of this strategy that we can't, you know, if Lawrence Stern is sometimes Lawrence Stern and sometimes Parson Yorick and sometimes Tristram Shandy, it's harder and harder for us to know who any of them are. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you you draw that out very clearly, and and again, playing with the different paradoxes, uh, you know, even in your title, it's really striking just the contradictions that these people seem to to be having played with. There's a, a real sense of of um, complexity to what they're doing, and it sounds like they're having fun with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had fun write, writing about and thinking about what they were doing with it. So yeah, there. I mean, part of the fun of writing this book was that the celebrities are so playful about this. And it, I mean, you know, so play to be so playful about something that sometimes seems as serious as identity. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, I mean, it's not. I don't know. I, identity is not as is, is a is a very serious thing in our society. And I think it was in theirs too, but Mm -hmm. to think about the ways that they could, that they could play with those identities was really fun. Yes. No, I, uh, I I have a hard time putting my finger on it, but there's almost something reassuring seeing how playful they were being with something as serious as, as identity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then of course you finish with a coda from a very different context Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being very dutiful and, and careful to point out that, you know, you're, you're not eliding kind of historical specificities by turning to the example of, of Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. But of course, you open the door to questions of continuities in, in kind of these forms of overexpression and, and mm-hmm. identity making. And, and yeah, I, I was just very curious to, to hear how you see this playing out in, in the present. I sort of struggled with this because I do, I do want to be a good historian and I don't want to suggest that, um, you know, everything that I study, I'm seeing through my own 21st century lens. And, um, you know, the 18th century is only important because it can teach us about our own lives. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be careful to sort of give the 18th century its due. Mm -hmm. But I also think that it's important to acknowledge the ways that our own cultures and our own um, times kind of do shape the way that we think about this. I think it's dishonest not to suggest that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so I, I wanted to sort of give a, a sense of like, 
why I was so interested in this right now and what I think it can shed light on about our society right now, even if, you know, even if there are a lot of contrasts between the 18th century and today. Mm -hmm. And so the Michael Jackson example was kind of my way of doing that. And again, I don't, you know, I, I don't think that there's exactly, I don't think that Michael Jackson was aware of Kali Sibber and was reading Kali Sibber. But I do think that um, we know that Michael Jackson read a lot of, uh, read P.T. Barnum's um, autobiography and admired it and gave it to his, um, to his staff and said he wanted his life to be the greatest show on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that he was interested in the history of celebrity. Um, and so um, partly I wanted to think about that and to think about the ways that some of these performance styles have sort of I don't know, have, have sort of come down to us, maybe not in their pure form, but that there is a, there's an inheritance here to a certain extent. And so I talked about Michael Jackson's crotch grab, um, which I, I just racked my brain for a more scholarly way of saying <laughs> crotch grab, but there isn't one. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to refer to it as, as crotch grab. Um, but basically, uh, to me, the crotch grab is, a sort of 21st century um, equivalent of or version of um, Kali Sibber's wig and that it's Michael Jackson sort of pointing out um, his masculinity, like sort of really obviously, Mm -hmm. right, Um, by grabbing his crotch. But he also then accompanies it with this high-pitched girls scream. And so we see that and and we aren't quite sure if he is performing himself as, as, excessively masculine or if he's performing himself as actually a, a, a bit feminine. And again, his, his identity is destabilized and we can't ever quite get a handle on, um, on that authentic self that we always want to see in celebrities. We always want to see them express an authentic self, but of course that's impossible. Mm-hmm. And I suppose having brought the conversation to the present moment, the the last question that I'm quite curious about is how did you come to this project in the first way, in the first instance? So I, it, it comes out of doing a lot of theater in high school and college and sort of reflecting on that. Then when I was, when I had outgrown that phase of my life, um, that's a terrible way of saying it actually. <laughs> um, for me, it was a phase of my life, but anyway, um, after I had gone to graduate school, kind of thinking about, well, why, why was I so fascinated with the theater? Why did I love being an actor? And I realized that what I loved about being on stage is I loved knowing all of the things that were going on backstage, right? And having that insider knowledge. And Mm -hmm. I think that's partly what drew me to academia too, honestly, is what is academia other than like this promise of insider knowledge. And, um, and so I was really fascinated by the backstage drama as a genre, because of course it's playing on that exact same fascination. And I think Kali Sibber's autobiography is playing on that exact same fascination of saying, okay, you've seen me on stage now I'm going to show you who I am with the code of my profession mm-hmm. when I take the code of my profession off, right? Um, and something that he says early on in the apology. And, and so I wanted to think about why I was so fascinated with that insider knowledge, but also why, as a culture, we seem to be so fascinated with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I also wanted to kind of get at my own frustration at reading Kali Sibber's apology where he starts out by promising all of this insider knowledge, 
but he never actually delivers. We never actually get that much information at all about his private life. Um, and so I wanted to think about like, yeah, that contradiction between our, our interest in his private life and his refusal to deliver that, but also another contradiction early on in his, his autobiography, which was this, he has this long monologue where he says, you know, it's really frustrating to be a celebrity and everybody wants to hear about your private life on the stage. And I have no defense because I'm open up to the fact that I'm famous opens me up to, um, everybody's, you know, judgments about my life. And it's really hard. And by the way, here's a, um, a, an autobiography that's like one of the longest uh, autobiographies uh, in the English language language to date and, um, you know, where I'm going to just go on and on and on about my private life. And so that contradiction between his performance of saying, I don't want you to look into my private life and then publishing this um, lengthy autobiography <laughs> that was promising to give us his private life, I was really fascinated by, and I wanted to think about how that was working. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it all started with Kali Sipper, but I was excited to see that it didn't end with Kali Sipper, that there were other actors doing this at the time too. Right. Um, well, it strikes me that perhaps Kali Sipper does get the last word because three centuries later, we're still fascinated mm -hmm. by that life and wanting to get, uh, you know, as much of a glimpse as possible. Right. And not being satisfied either. Right. Yeah. We're still interested in his private life, but we can't quite figure out what it meant. Mm -hmm. And and it's through the process of analysis that we continue to do that in, in kind of deeper and, and still um, more enticing ways. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. no, it, it's, it's a, it's a fantastic read and it opens up uh, the door to just so many different ideas and so many more questions. And again, I congratulate you for it. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for, for joining me in our discussion. Thank you. It was lovely to talk to you. And you as well.